praise group. If you read and you get to the words, and you let the words bathe into your soul, you realize that the simplicity of the gospel really is the hope of the world. And that last song was so poignant. As you think about the world we live in, as you think about shadowy forces gathering all around us, as you think about those that would say that religion is passé, and Christianity is no longer relevant, then you hear the message of a God who enfleshes himself into our stories in order to give us hope. So thank you for that wonderful, wonderful reminder. You're going to have to help me because tonight I am experiencing a existential crisis. You see, typically in my role, I am used to being the young guy in the room, primarily because I minister to people that are a little bit older than I am. And I'm looking around, and it's, it's a very jarring moment when you actually recognize that you are the old guy in the room. So please bear with me, um, and we're going to turn our hearts and our minds to Scripture. And vastly bathe in its timeliness and its timelessness. But before we do that, can I invite you to pray with me? Loving Lord, you call us from many a corner, different paths, different stories, different struggles, and you weave all of that together. And you take our songs broken as they are. So today, Lord, we pray that you give us the courage to speak the grammar of grace and to sing the chorus of salvation. We pray in the name of the one that gives our stories meaning, Jesus Christ. And all the people of God said, Amen. So I need to be a bit vulnerable with you and share something about myself, something rather personal. And I recognize that doing so always carries with it a risk, and that is the risk that I will make some enemies here tonight. But in my home, sports are a matter of ultimate concern. And that began when I was very young. You see, my grandparents came to this country and settled in Worcester, Massachusetts. And it was in Massachusetts they, they became rapid, rapid baseball fans. And I grew up in the cold winters in Worcester, learning how to root for the Red Sox, which meant that I loathed the Yankees. Now, early on, sorry, Pastor, Satan the Empire. Early on, I broke my family's heart because you see, we are from the Caribbean. And as you might surmise, the winters in Worcester are about as far removed from the weather in the Caribbean as one could think, and so we decided to move to Southern California. And while we were living in Southern California, I decided not only to be a faithful Red Sox fan, but also to depart from my family's tradition of following the Celtics, and I became a Raker fan. 
And tomorrow, tomorrow I'm going to be weighing uh, pins and needles and nervously awaiting the sun to not come down because I am also an LA Rams fan. Now there's something about sports that is interesting. And I think it's because sports are pregnant with these values that we all think are important. When you think about sports, you think about teamwork. You think about fair play. And you think about coming together to reach an objective. The other thing that I think is so powerful about sports is that as they become a cultural phenomenon, how do you think about it, friends? Maybe one other social phenomenon that has the capacity to bring together people from different ethnic backgrounds, different socioeconomic status, and different cultures. And the reason for that is because sport speaks to something that is primal in us. It is the desire to still have heroes in the stories that we partake of. And as we begin to construct these heroes, we discover something rather interesting, and that is that sports give us moments. Moments that become iconic. Now, I told you that I am the old guy here. And so you and I are going to take a tour down memory lane through some iconic moments. The first one, comes from the World Series in 1952. 1952 World Series. The New York Giants are playing the Cleveland Indians. It's game one of the series. It's a close game. New York is up by one lead. Suddenly, in the ninth inning, Cleveland is up to bat. And the batter hits a rocket to the deepest part of the field. Everyone is expecting it to be a hit, except for Willie Mays, the center fielder. He looks at the ball, breezing ahead, turns and begins to gallop towards the wall. Right before he hits it, he reaches out and crisply catches the ball. This propels the Giants to win that game and ultimately become World Series champions. Or how about this one? The year now is 1965. The young boxer looks glaringly and defiantly and is knocked out foe. It has been a rather acrimonious build-up to the fight. So he listened, the challenger, has spent the past 16 months telling a young Cassius Clay that his victory in 1964 was a fluke. Observers at ringside can hear Clay repeating time and time again, is it a fluke? As he begins to demolish this Finally, when the champion knocks down the challenger, he can be heard yelling at him, get up, get up and fight. That's the Adventist version that I can show you. <laughs> what about this one? 1982, NFC 
championship game. The score is 27 to 21, Candlestick Park in San Francisco. The San Francisco 49ers are down by six points, but they are driving deep in their opponent's territory. The down in distance is third and down, three yards to go. With only a minute left on the clock, the ball is hiked, and the quarterback, Joe Montana, surveys the field and avoids a blitz, and right before he is pinned down, he throws a dart at the back of the end zone where Dwight Clark rises up and with his fingertips catches the ball. Final score, 28 to 27. This play known simply as the catch cements Montana's place amidst the great football players of all time and propels the 49ers into a dynasty. I've got one more the year this time is 1998. The place Delta Center, Salt Lake City. It's game six of the NBA Finals. Six seconds left in the clock. The Chicago Bulls are facing the Utah Jazz. Utah's up by one point. With a mere six seconds, the ball is placed in arguably the best basketball player in history. He drives to the basket, stops on a dime, elevates, propels a shot to the basket, and hands the ball, swooshes through the net. He stands there. Victorious, he poses for a moment. A hush falls around the crowd, and it's almost as if everybody that is there knows this is the last shot that Jordan will ever take. We don't count anything that he did with the Washington Wizards. <laughs> and what is it about these moments that have become so iconic? That they have firmly implanted themselves into the subconscious of America. It's because we still believe that life itself about a contest. We claw with our nails, tooth and nail, to assure a piece of the American dream for ourselves. And sports. Sports provides a great metaphor for that. Now, what characterizes a truly great athlete is that he or she understands that his or her duty is more than just to fill out a statue. You see, the truly great ones understand that their job, their duty, their calling is to shape and reshape history. To bend cities, dreams, franchises, and sometimes unsurmountable odds to their opinion. It makes ability to understand that this is my moment. There's an ancient proverb that was spoken, and it was spoken more as a curse 
The Proverbs say that may you live in interesting times. As I look at your faces, I can't help but notice that you are called to live in interesting moments. I mean, look around and think about the context that you have called to inhabit. Vicious and vitriolic language has taken over our discourse. You face almost constant pressure. The pressure to be perfect. To present a picture of your life that is manicured. Your value is determined and measured by Instagram followers. And how much influence do you have in social media? You face unyielding competition in academics. And you are living in a society that has been the most divided it has ever been in America. These truly are chaotic times. And so maybe, just maybe, as you survey and you look at the reality that you are living in, you have thought to yourself, I know where I can find some refuge. I know where I can go rest. I'm going to go to church. And you come into church. And you recognize, you recognize that the environment in church is every bit as divisive and chaotic as what we found, find in popular culture. And it seems like all hope is lost. Today I want to ask you to resist the temptation to give in to despair. For this is your moment. How do I know that? Well, I know that because this book has served to point out moments for thousands and thousands of people for over 5,000 years. And so today I would like to invite you to once again open the book and see if you can find any guidance. I open it to the book of Isaiah, the 43rd chapter. And we're going to read today verses 16 through 21 but we will really try to focus on verse 19. So if you have a Bible, either in material form or digital form, I invite you to open it with me, Isaiah chapter 43. And we begin with verse 16. Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in mighty water. Now, let me explain something to you about the people that Isaiah is writing to. For Isaiah is also writing to a community that is living in chaotic moments. You see, Isaiah is writing to a people that are facing this cognitive dissonance. On the one hand, they have been taught that God actually loves them, that God is intimately interested with every detail that happens in your life. Does that sound familiar? But on the other hand, the reality of their everyday life is that they are exiles in Babylon. Their parents 
and their siblings. Live lives of constant oppression and repression. It seems like there is no hope and that God has forgotten. And so somehow, Isaiah is trying to bridge that enormous chasm between the things that we say about God and the reality of everyday life. And so Isaiah says, Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the seas, a path in mighty water, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise, they are extinguished and quenched like a Now notice what he's doing. He is using language of water, chariots, and horses. And what I find beautiful about Isaiah is that Isaiah is trying to go back to that moment. That heroic moment that lives in the consciousness of every Israelite. I'm speaking, of course, about the Exodus of Egypt. Isaiah is saying, thus says the Lord, remember what I have done. He is trying to connect them to their collective histories. But he doesn't leave them there. He says, remember not the formula former things, nor consider the things of old. So wait a second, because it seems like Isaiah has gotten confused. In the midst of chaotic moments, Isaiah is telling a generation who has now been called to inhabit the moment to remember what God has done for the past. In the past. And then he tells them, oh, but don't pay any attention. Unless we think that Isaiah has gotten confused, permit me to provide a bit of clarification here. What Isaiah is truly saying is that every single thing in the history of Israel is intended to prepare them for this very moment. And so I tell you this. Every single thing you have experienced. Every single thing your parents have experienced. Every single thing your parents' parents have experienced is intended to prepare you to seize this moment. Now I know, I know that the temptation is always there, particularly with your generation, to be skeptical. You are born in a time of skepticism. I am not. Again, I'm from a different generation. So this week, I got a letter in my email. And the letter in the email, this email was from Nigeria. And the email told me, congratulations. You are the proud proud descendant of a long line of Nigerian princes. <laughs> and there's this huge, huge inheritance that you need to collect. We just need one thing from your bank information so that we can deposit this huge, huge inheritance 
and I was typing in my credit card and my bank information when someone your age came and said it's a scam. <laughs> Don't laugh. I thought it was Nigerian royalty for a second. You see, you are by nature skeptic, and so when I tell you that every single event in human history is with you in mind, preparing you for this moment, you probably are rolling your eyes and saying, eh. But that's a lie. This Christmas, I received a very interesting present. You see, my wife has made it her personal crusade to give me presence that will evoke a response. Sometimes it's not a positive response, but it's a response nonetheless. And so this particular Christmas, we were opening presents, and her presence her present to me was neatly nestled under the tree. I opened it dreaming about some tickets to the playoffs to watch the Rams. And what greeted me wasn't uh, a set of tickets, rather it was a book. And the title of the book was How to Bake Like a Boss. <laughs> Don't laugh, I am not only extremely wealthy, descendant of Nigerian royalty, but I am also a boss baker. I'm going to admit, when, when I opened this book, friends, I was a bit taken aback. Because I don't really understand what boss baking is about. I don't even understand what regular baking is about. And, I mean, what really constitutes a, a boss baker? What, what are the quantifiable characteristics of a baker who has achieved true mastery? So I read the preface to the book, and the preface to the book simply stated, if you follow the instructions on this book, soon you too will be a boss baker. Well, I'm, even I'm not that naive. But I said, hey, um, instead of going to the football game, I'm going to try to bake. And so I opened the first Recipe. The first recipe was for a turnover apple pie. And I looked at the recipe and I, it seemed pretty simple, so I began to follow it. I took the pie in the oven. A few minutes later, I came out. I looked at it. It actually looked decent. But I wasn't going to try it because baking is just a gift that keeps on giving. So I called my wife and I said, Linda, come see what I've done. What I've done. I just baked like a boss. And she ran into the kitchen, looked at what I had done, and said, that's not terrible. I said, you need to try this. So I cut her a piece and breathlessly waited to see what she would do. She put a piece of pie in the oven. And the pie was so When finally she recovered from the shock, 
she gave me the greatest compliment I have ever heard. She said, this is the best piece of pie I have ever tasted. And from that moment on, I had stopped baking. Pies, bread, cornbread, cakes, you name it, chances are I've already baked it. Now, I want you to, in the midst of your skepticism, think about what it feels like when the preface or the promise of something not only fulfills your expectation, but surpasses your wildest dreams. And that is what God, in essence, is telling the people in the book of Isaiah. You are going to inhabit this moment. And the reality of the moment is not only going to fulfill your expectations, it is going to surpass your wildest dreams. How? Well, God continues. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Can you not see it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert, and the wild beasts will honor me. For I give water in the wilderness and rivers in the desert to give drink to my chosen people and the people whom I form for myself that they may declare my praise. Behold, I am doing something new. And the result of what I am doing is not only going to fulfill your greatest dreams, it's going to be infectious. This is your moment. Today belongs to you. Now I know. I know that the reality that you inhabit, and I know that the world in which you live in, is an enormous and almost perfect representation of that which William Butler Yeats mentions when he writes, things fall apart and the center gives waste way, and chaos is loose upon the world, but believe you me, what we have as Christians is the promise that today belongs to you, and that in God, something new can occur. So what does that look like? What is this new reality in this chaotic moment that God has called you to inhabit? What does that look like? for you to decide. But today, today I want to affirm you with the same prayer that has become the center and the pivot for Christendom for over 2,000 years, and that is praise. Today, in this chaotic time, in these stressful moments of today, today you will catch wind of a vision that says you possess inherent value. Oh, today, today you will be part of a dream that knocks down these ideas of human beings 
as means toward them rather than an end in themselves. Oh, today, today you will throw out a dart in amidst the vitriolic and violent language, a dart that speaks with compassion and grace. And it will catch on. Oh, people will follow. The people are dirty with that kind Today, today, in your moment, you will pose victorious. And you too have been called to be a gospel player. I once heard an interview that Jim Bray, one of the most respected sports writers in America, was conducting with Michael Jordan. Bray asked him, how have you achieved mastery in your sport? Jordan said, the only way to approach and achieve mastery is if you view the sport like an that got me thinking about today as you pose defiantly in a world that would seek to dehumanize you. Recognize this about yourself. Each one of you is a work of art, and each one is an artist of This is our moment. This is your church. And Lord, the things of hell shall not prevail in us. For in us today, you are doing something new. So give us courage. Courage to recognize and accept.